0: Welcome to episode five of season two. Today we welcome David Miloff, a proud Baharian Jew, to talk about Baharian Jews, the journey from Israel to Iran and the Silk Road. So David, my own knowledge of Baharian Jews, um, honestly, is a little bit limited in scope, uh, especially when I was growing up. um, So my immediate family, they all immigrated from Belarus And as many of the audience knows, I didn't really understand that Jews are a people (laughs) until maybe 2014. Like, you know, I thought that Jews actually were from Eastern Europe. I grew up with a lot of Ashkenaz Jews. I didn't understand that we're one people from one origination point from Israel. And so my Grandparents, especially my grandmother, uh, when I was younger, you know, she would mention Jews in their community that they grew up. Um, and then she would sometimes mention Buharian Jews. And so she would say, Oh, I need, I need Buharskia. Those who don't understand Russian, that just translates like they are Buharian. And so I always understood that maybe Buharian Jews are not quite the same as the Jews in Belarus, but I never understood any differences. And then when I got older, you know, sometimes we go to Bihari restaurants uh, here in New York City, uh, over in Brooklyn. I knew that the food tasted better. <laughs> I knew that the music uh, was better than what I had, you know, grow up, grown up on. And then sometimes in snippets of conversation, you know, my grandmother would say, oh, I need deal with, uh business buharski way, you know, like the, the, the Bihari way. So it's not like I felt any like tension between the groups, but I always like knew that there there was a difference. And then I didn't think about Baharian Jews at all for many, many years um, until I moved to New York. And then after becoming Zionist, I, you know, then befriended Jews of many different backgrounds, uh, especially uh, Sephardic communities, Mizrahi communities. One of the reasons uh, that season two of this podcast is so focused on Jewish diversity, uh, especially amongst the non Ashkenaz communities. And I became friends with many Baharian Jews and I became just fascinated with the culture and with the history. And so I feel like this would be a perfect opportunity to talk with you, a proud member of the Baharian Jewish community, to find out a little bit more. So welcome, David. And my first question to you is just general history. How did Buharian Jews get from Israel to Iran and to Uzbekistan?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So first off, I want to thank you again for having me. Um, It's an honor to be on here, somewhat representing my community and speaking about them to the best of my ability. So, how do Baharian Jews get from Israel to Iran to Central Asia? So, first, I think it's important to note that a lot of people realize, a lot of people think about, you know, the the 10 lost tribes of Israel, right? And they're like, who are they? So, so Baharian Jews, we consider ourselves one of the 10 lost tribes. And that's just something I like to point out as a, As an interesting fact, and basically who we are is that during the first Babylonian exile, we are the descendants of the Jews who did not return back to Jerusalem. We were given an option to, and thirty percent went back, but the rest essentially stayed. Um, we instead went eastward to modern-day Iran, which back in the day was known as Persian Empire, and from there the Jews. Due to the trading of the Silk Road, as well as some other major characters, which I'll talk about later eventually made to Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, and ultimately what we are most known for today, Uzbekistan. Um, It's also very interesting to note that after 50 to 60 years of being in captivity of the Babylonians, the Persian Empire emerged, and the king of the Persian Empire Essentially, said to us as I as I said that we had the option of either staying or going back, and some stayed, some went back. Um, And even when the second temple was built, you know, some might think, "Oh, you know, beautiful, we have the temple, we'll go back." But instead, we decided to stay in the area where we had been living, and we kept all the traditions from the first temple. And from there, the Silk Road and trade led us. To where we are today,
0: that's really interesting. And I had read very recently, uh, you mentioned the term the ten lost tribes. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, having a podcast uh, to do with Jews, anti-Semitism has to enter the picture a- at some point. And so, um for those who are not familiar, a lot of anti-Semites will say, well, the Jews, um there were only two tribes left, and then the ten lost Jews, those are not. The, the 10 lost tribes, those are not really Jews. And then all different groups claim, you know, you have the black Israelite uh, anti-Semites, you know, claiming that they're lost Jews and, and, and other groups as due. But when you really think about it, there are no really lost Jews anymore because genetically, like you said, like we have found them all right. Like yeah. uh, your community, the Kurdish Jews, we now know some Jews even ended up in Afghanistan Um, all all over. So everyone has been accounted for. Yeah. That's really really important to note that, right. Not all Jews returned back to Israel after, um, after captivity, but the Jewish uh, traditions and the Jewish uh, faith did continue. And like you mentioned uh, in Babylonia, so wasn't it the uh, Babylonian Talmud that set the tone for what we know as the practice of judaism
1: today yeah so don't quote me on this i'm not a religious scholar by any means but i I believe it was called the shalhun or something along those lines and yeah i'm going to be speaking about a man later uh, yosef ben maman who helped us a lot also when he found us in uzbekistan but yeah
0: Perfect. And so you mentioned the Silk Road. And, you know, obviously, this was a long, arduous journey. And I know this didn't happen in one time period. But, you know, over the centuries, um, like I said, like, you know, from uh, the Persian Empire, along the Silk Road, ending up in Central Asia. So were, did, were Jews in your, what would become like your community, were they welcomed along their journeys? Or did they have a lot of pushed back and where they were uh, winding up.
1: So absolutely. So, so like I said before, we exiled into Babylonia and then came Persian Empire and then eventually we made it to Uzbekistan. So of course, there was a lot of travel we did. Um, for the most part, I would personally say yes, but our movement through the diaspora was very similar to that of other Jewish communities where some people let us be, you know, they allowed us to live peacefully. Other people give us problems and force us into you know their own ways of life. Um, during ancient times, when Bukharian Jews were were believed to have been exiled from Israel, um, their interactions with the communities were like weren't very well documented, right? It was it was oral. Um, what I would say is that our, our biggest problem was probably demis, right? It was the way we were treated. We were treated like second class citizens a lot of the time. Um, but yeah.
0: And so, speaking of uh, Dmas and Dimitud, uh, that brings me to my next question: Is that you know, once uh, the Jewish that Jewish community settled in Uzbekistan? And so, when we say when I say Uzbekistan, but then also you had mentioned and obviously correctly that it was not just Uzbekistan, I even mean, though that's where the majority of the Baharian Jews ended up and that's where the the name uh like, right but, is it buhara is that the city yeah okay so so i know that but then there were jews i know in some right and um even uh like you mentioned turkmenistan and i had read somewhere recently correct me if this is wrong uh some of the community also had lived in uh tajikistan oh yeah,
2: yeah. A-, a lot of them
0: yeah. right so um how was life like in such a Muslim majority nation. Um and, and I wanted to either compare this or contrast this this to I have a very good friend who is a Zari and her family for hundreds of years had lived in Azerbaijan amongst Muslims. And yeah. when, one of my first questions was, oh wow, so interesting was there a lot of anti-Semitism and she laughed and she said not at all. She's like even uh, herself she grew up there up until the age of 12, she said, I had lots of Muslim friends my grandparents had business with Muslims. In fact, a lot of Ashkenaz Jews would come in uh, from Belarus uh, during um, the 1950s, 1960s to escape the more uh, onerous anti-Semitism uh, from, <clears throat> from those areas into the more Muslim majority. So if you could uh, expand on that a little bit more, how it was like in, in Uzbekistan.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So first, um, I'll start on the Muslims, and then I'll get into the more specific uh, dimitude. Mm-hmm. So, going even back further than the Soviet Union, during Islamic conquest, there's something actually recently learned called Umar laws. So those made it that we couldn't do things like ride horses, which were transportation. We couldn't wear the same attire as Muslims, and we had to pay their tax. The only silver lining I would say I found to this is that we were a protected people. Um, and, and this was... As
0: opposed, under
2: I'm
0: sorry, so as opposed to the Christians who were so, a little bit more um, hated amongst, like, amongst the Umar Pact, correct? A little bit more was anti-Christian? I,
1: so I'm not an expert on Umar, but I... I simply might have been a little lower, but but I know that, that the Dimitude basically was saying that if you're not a Muslim, we're not going to hurt you, but you're kind of going to be a second class citizen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that happened. And then we also were designated a special area where we lived, which is known as Mbala Yehudion. And We basically got this community, and we were still allowed to practice our faith in a safe environment. And as I said before, we were protected. So I actually found out from my personal family that they lived in one of these places. However, there was an earthquake in 1966, and I believe I'm not mistaken, some people were moved out of the community, and they they lived more close to the Muslims than before. Um... In terms of general life, it was it was very complicated. I've heard some people say, "Oh, it was okay for my family," and others I've heard it wasn't so great. They they've said that you know when they were leaving the Soviet Union, a lot of Uzbeks were like, "Oh, you know, go back to Israel." A lot of them are saying that that they, they were disrespected on you know their high holidays like Pesach and things of that sort. Um, during Dimitude, as I mentioned before, when the Islamic conquests were first happening, we lived under heavy dimitude. During the medieval period in Central Asia, including, and especially the reason where Bukharian Jews were, it was ruled by various Muslim empires, such as the Samanids, the Seljuks, and the Timurids. And so, under Islamic law, non-Muslims, including Jews, Christians, everyone, were we were granted protected but subordinate status. So we were second class, as I said before. And we had it was basically go do your own thing, just don't bother us and pay attention, just because you're here and taking up space.
0: And it probably depended on the ruler. And that would be interesting uh, to further research as well, uh, like for myself, because, um, you know, I teach a class on Zionism education. We're talking about, for example, the Ottoman Empire, which lasted a little bit over 400 years. The first 200 years, the Jews, like you said, were left alone. Yes, there was demitude on the books, but it was not really enforced because the Jews served a great purpose to the empire. And then when the Jews lost their status um, as useful to the empire, uh, and that had a lot to do with the Christians throwing on the Jews, it's a whole complicated mess. Uh, Suddenly, the Dimitri laws were very much enforced, and not only enforced upon the Jews who lived um, in now Turkey, but also suddenly the Ottoman Empire cared very much about what the Jews were doing in Israel. And then started... Ramping up their anti-Semitic measures. So it's interesting to find out whether it was a ruler by ruler, um, you know, based, even though the rules were always on the books, or if in Central Asia it was just a constant presence of those onerous laws.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when was, I was researching it, I from my personal opinion, I felt that Timur the lame wasn't the worst person, I will say. And the reason I will say that is because, from what I read, is that he played a significant role in in why we got there. Um, Under his rule, the the Silk Road, its roads flourished, and it connected Central Asia with various regions. Um, He was also known for his tolerance towards different ethnic groups, and it's pretty uncommon during that era. And so he helped to create a very diverse society in Samarkand, which attracted you know many traders, including Jews. So this resulted in Jewish merchants and artisans and people who sold things settling in Samarkand under Timur's rule. So for me personally, when I was reading about this, I was like, okay, you know he may have, put in a in place, we may have, you know, not had as many rights, but for me, I feel like he's, he was treating us not terribly. Mm -hmm.
0: Interesting. And when you mentioned your family, and and that's so interesting, right? Because I I just did my DNA test. Uh, Well, I did three, so I'm hundred percent Jewish, uh, 92% Ashkenaz and the rest uh, Iberian and Italian. Um, But so what I'm finding, you know, when I'm talking to uh, Ashkenaz Jews, there pretty much was that constant of anti-Semitism, no matter what family you talk to, right? It's like, you know, we had pogroms and and before that we had other organized killings and of course, you know, culminated in in the Holocaust. When I talk to more Mizrahi Jews and Sephardic Jews, it's really fascinating to me. It really is family by family, right? Like some families will say, oh, you know, the Muslims treated us horribly, constantly another family would say, oh, you know, like my grandfather or my great grandfather was uh, friendly with the king of so and so country. So in your family specifically, um, what did your grandparents or great grandparents say about their experiences as being Jews in, in a Muslim country?
1: Yeah, so it wasn't exactly positive. I grew up with two main stories. So I grew up with one story that my uncle, he went to school, of course, and the teacher essentially came over to my grandmother's house. And my my grandmother, she would make jams and, and, and these sorts of foods in a jar. And the teacher basically said, You know, if you don't if you don't give me that all these jams or all these whatever it was, you know, your son's not gonna pass. Of course you want your son to pass school, so you do it. Mm-hmm. Um another story I was told was that during Pesach. When they lived you know, next to a Muslim, next to the Uzbeks, they wanted to be nice. And then so they went to their neighbor and they were like, Hey, here are some foods that we made. You know, it's our Pesach, like told them all about it. And then what they was told is that then their neighbor took the food and then threw it on top of their roof. Wow. Yeah. And. I don't I don't know the correct word to describe this, but I was told a lot more about the emotions that they felt towards the community. And if any Uzbeks are listening, I love all of you. But I learned more about how they felt to the, the Uzbek community because I told them at one point that I had a friend who's Uzbek. I still do. He's a good friend of mine. And when I told them that, they were like, you have to be careful. Because they said, you know, we we've lived amongst these people, we know how they are. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that they had a good outlook. And I've heard from people in the community, I've never met them, who have had good experiences, but for the most part, whenever people talk about living amongst, you know, their Uzbek neighbors, it's like, yeah, no, I'm I'm so happy I got out
0: of there. That's interesting. Actually, now that I think about my own family, even though we're not uh behind, um, my even within uh, the Ashkenaz community. So for the most part, you know, like I grew up on stories of programs. But recently, I I love how a lot of family history comes out for most people. Like recently, like, you know, you hear snippets as an adult. Uh, so it turns out my great grandmother, after the war, somehow ended up in Rostov on don which is a town that's Been in the news in the last weekend or so. Uh, For those not familiar, that's where the failed coup against Putin uh, was was happening by, by the Wagner Group. And so I had asked my mom, I said, How did she end up there? Were there a lot of Jews there? And she said, No, it was actually mostly Cossacks. But ironically, they treated her really well and they knew that she was a Jew. And a lot of the Cossacks, again, did not know this about them. They were fishermen. Especially in in that town. And they would deliver her fresh fish whenever they would do their own catch. And she had even, my mom had even shared a story that one of the Cossacks' mother would accompany her son on the fish delivery. And this happened, uh, I think, like once every couple of weeks. And at one point, the mother had even said, Oh, you're a Jew. And like, bless you. Like, she, she said something very positive. And so, like, you know, when we hear about Cossacks, like, you know, again, we hear pogroms, you know, fiddler on the roof is based on yes. that. But then sometimes you have these outlying stories yes. where right. So I, I just I just think it's like so interesting too, like depending on the person and the family. Um, so just wondering too, in terms I know you talked about your family, you know, obviously did not have uh, the best of experiences, but at the same time, I know that my own family, um during, during the, during the Holocaust, um, on my father, on my paternal side, uh, those who were lucky enough to escape Belarus, of course, those who did not, they were all murdered, but those who did just found out that they ended up in Tashkent and spent the warriors there very much protected. And some, I don't, I don't think too many, but some family members, obviously extended family members, um, ended up staying in Uzbekistan um, yeah. now into whatever they left for Israel, which I'm assuming is the nineties um, g- g- given the history of, of Aliyah. So it, it, to me, it's interesting. And so could you explain a little bit further, right? Because, you know, there was anti-Semitism, but then how did a lot of these Jews from the more Western republics, um, were at least semi-welcomed in Uzbekistan during the war.
2: So, yeah. Um,
1: So, from what I know, is that although there was a war, it was in Europe. So, it wasn't in Uzbekistan. So, that's why they went there. And also, the way I see it is that we had an established community. So they, they they probably felt safer going there. Um, I really think it was in part due to the strong Bukharian Jewish community that was already established there. And what I found out also, because as you said, we're always finding things out, is that Soviet government actively was was promoting this idea of unity and that everyone had the shared struggle against Nazi invasion, and they portrayed the war. For, as a collective fight for the survival of you know their own Soviet people. And they were like, listen, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. So I also think that it wasn't only the fact that there was a Bahrain community, but it was also that there was positive propaganda that was encouraging people to maybe be more inclusive and accepting of refugees, including Russian Jews. One other thing I found out, is that it wasn't only Uzbekistan people went to. I found out a lot of people went to Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and when asking people, all they said was that, listen, there was no war Mm -hmm. and there was no anti-Semitism. Because Europe, as we know, has had an unfortunate history of anti-Semitism. But they said, here, you know, we, we lived very peacefully. People were helping us out. So I think that's why they went there. You no, know, there was no war, and yeah.
0: And that's interesting because you know when I heard that my extended family or parts of them had ended up in Uzbekistan, immediately you know I assumed oh they lived amongst the Muslims. And you brought up a very interesting point that most likely they lived amongst the Jews, right, in the Jewish communities, and yeah. it was the Jewish communities that were facilitating all the help that they needed. So I, I thank you for clarifying of my, my of misconception about that. So speaking of community, um, I know that the Baharian Jews have a very unique uh, culture, you know, amongst the, the greater Jewish culture. So what makes Baharian Jews unique in terms of a subculture? In so I guess my first pivot would be, do Jews in your community, do they or do, do you consider um, yourself yourselves sub- Sephardic or a different category? And what are some typical Buharian traditions that those outside of the community might not know about?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I personally think that the terms fardi and Ashkenazi are the two most popular terms, especially in America. Mm-hmm. People either ask who's oh, Sephardi or oh, Ashkenazi. There are smaller terms like Mizrahi. Mm-hmm. And for me, Although, if you ask most Bukharians, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm Sephardi. I would say Mizrahi. And the reason is, is from my understanding, Sephardi Jews are from Spain and areas surrounding Spain. But pretty much none of us are from Spain. Mm-hmm. I've heard some people with a certain last name are from Spain. But as we spoke about earlier, we went from Israel. We were exiled then we went to the Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iran and Iraq. And then we went to Central Asia. We were never in Spain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, Sephardi, calling yourself Sephardi, is an okay umbrella term. Um, I personally think Mizrahi is a little more accurate. And there was actually a man named Yosef Ben-Maman. I believe that's his name, or Yosef maman who came through Bukhara. And when he did, the reason that he was so important is because he integrated himself into the community fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And he did so well, he actually ended up becoming the chief rabbi of the Emirate of Bukhara.
2: Wow!
1: And he was the one who introduced the Shulchan Aruch to the community in the 19th century. Because beforehand, when it was introduced to the world, the Shulchan Aruch, Bukhara Jews were like, not for me. Like, maybe, maybe for other people, not for me. But then he brought it back to them. So it's also important to note that the Hungarian Jews—we we never lost our jewelry, but you know, we, we we kept traditions. You know, so he helped us become like very—I guess I don't know if the right word—is passionate. But he helped us religious also. He helped us become more religious and establish, you know, order.
0: That makes sense. I know. I was just thinking that makes sense, right? Because if you think about, you know, not having modern technology, uh, modern ways of, of transportation, you know, how many people did actually pass through central Asia, unless like part of an army. So it would yeah. be sense that the Jews of central Asia were not as connected to, let's say the Jews of the Arab lands versus the Jews of Western Europe, or even Jews in Persia that had a, mighty unified country right there so yeah, yeah of
2: course
1: and and i've also read that we we didn't even have yeshivas or synagogues for a period of time it was pretty much all small group learning small we we, we just did everything group. we didn't have establishments so the this yosef if i read it correctly he helped us to do all these things so so he was really a big player for us
0: And do you know where he came from um, and how he found the the community?
1: So, we know he was a Sephardi Jew, which Mm -hmm. is is why we took up his customs. I believe what happened was he was collecting money for something in Galilee, back in Israel. And he came through. um, I think he was from Maned. I'm not sure if that's the correct word. He was from Maned, and yeah, he traveled through. He heard about our community because you know when you're trading, you someone goes, "Oh yeah, you know the the Jews in Bukhara, you know, they're the great tradespeople," and then you you know you want to visit them. So yeah, he eventually came around and visited us, and became our rabbi. So
0: he was kind of I would akin it to the more modern version of Benjamin Tudela, who in the Middle Ages would go around the world looking for. "Quote unquote, lost Jewish communities, and we're, and he was finding Jews in Yemen and uh, Hejaz in Saudi Arabia, and I think he even stopped in Central Asia at one point, but he kept going. He did not yeah. really stay there. And yeah. it's important. It's important to have those intrepid Jews who go around the world, right? Like especially during those times uh, when there was no technology and and looking for for our people. Uh, so that that's great that he." you know, reintroduced, I would like to say, right? Because obviously the community is genetically Jewish and and they I I think like maybe the Jews knew what to do, but again, like you know, with an oral tradition, having that disconnect is important to have, you know, yeah. a good, strong leader. And so um what are some typical Bukharian traditions um that you know maybe Ashkenaz Jews, you know, uh that differ a little bit? Absolutely.
1: So, one of the traditions is it's, it's, these both happen during a wedding. And obviously, I'll, I'll list more that happen outside of it. But so, one of them is called Kanhori. And this happens when we do an engagement. And we basically have sweets and we bring a lot of gifts to the bride side. And along with Kanhori is something called Lali. And Lali actually means tray. And it's a very literal thing because we're bringing praise of gifts that the bride will do. So that's something I think that we do. I've never seen or heard of a Ashkenazi Jew doing that. We don't, uh, yeah. If, so, and I don't know if other communities do this as well, but Bukharians may sometimes do a hoop at night. Not all of them do, but some do. And before they even do the chupa and the ketuba, we get together with our closest family members, and it's basically just it's, it's a very intimate moment. And during this time, from what I've been told is said, um, is which means not to jinx. So for me, the way I took that is not to jinx the wedding. You know, so that you live a long and prosperous life. So, you know, so basically say. And at these events, we have a robe that we wear called the Jemaah which is very famous, I would say, in our community. It's very identifiable. And it's basically a robe made of velvet and silk, velvet or silk, rather. And it has Jewish symbols on it, like the menorah, like the Magen David. And yeah, we wear it during festivals, religious occasions.
0: I think I saw that robe a couple of years before COVID. It was the Israel Day Parade. And you know, there are different groups marching down Fifth Avenue. And they, and I at first didn't know like that it was Baharian Jews, but I saw a a very well dressed group with the velvet robes, uh, with with the gold tassels, with like you said, the Judaica symbols on the back. And then they identified that they were Baharian Jews.
2: So,
1: and one other thing I forgot to mention is that, and you'll actually see this if you go to Israel now. It's, It's very funny how much people have adopted culture. I don't want to say Arab because it's we're, we're all Jews, mm-hmm. but it is the the Bukharan kippah. Kipa. So it's basically like the kippah I'm wearing right now. It's very it's a little smaller. It's, it's flat on my head, but the Bukharan kippah is more of a skull cap. Oh yeah,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: it has all sorts of designs on it, and it's it's very beautiful. I I have one myself from Uzbekistan. It's very dear to me. But So we have that. And that's another, essentially, like a shouting to the public that I am Bukharian.
0: I love that. Like I have an identifying uh, symbol. Absolutely. And so I, again, like I mentioned in in, uh, the beginning of the podcast, that I had been to some Bukharian restaurants uh, here in Brooklyn. So are there any specific Bukharian dishes, uh, Bukharian Jewish dishes that are specific to your community? For
1: sure. For sure. So we have things like, which is something I eat very often.
0: I'm um, so um, can, can you repeat that? Because I think it was cut off a little bit.
1: Oh, no problem. So we, we have something called Bach, which if you want to look it up, I'd say the easiest way to look it up is green Central Asian rice, to be honest. And whenever I describe it to a non-Bukharian, but a Russian speaker, someone, uh, you know, Soviet Jew, I simply tell them that it's green cloth. And it's comprised of rice, onions, chicken or beef, and cilantro.
0: And so the non and that sounds delicious, by the way. But the non green pilaf that you know is more known is that more of a Muslim dish of Uzbekistan, or or is that something altogether different?
1: I'm not sure if it's a Muslim dish because I know people who are from Russia who know about it and who have had it. I think that's more of just soviet dish we'll I, say okay um
0: my family made it but i didn't know where it was from they would just say um it's from republic like, it gets from the republics
1: yeah yeah so yes yeah, so you can pretty much ask anyone and they've had it Bach, i think is a little more like when if i've ever gone up to nazi jew they're all like oh yeah of course i've had you know bluff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: but Bach is a little more so more specific
0: Right. I've never heard of it, but honestly, I think it sounds better. So I'll have to uh, get an invite to my, one of my Bukharian Jewish friends uh, dinner. And so, um, you know, Jews living, although, like you said, like, you know, there were melas and different, you know, areas designated to Jews. But at the same time, you know, it was Muslim, uh, Muslim community, uh, overall countries. Were was there any intermarriage between um, Muslims and Jews?
1: Yeah. So one other food I wanted to mention uh, Mm -hmm. that is is dear to us is two. Actually, I'll say is if you go to a Bukharian restaurant, you hopefully will find this called monte, which is basically. Oh, you've had them. I've had them. Yeah. Oh, amazing, amazing. Yeah. So they're they're very delicious. If anyone's listening, you should definitely go and source yourself some wherever you can um it's, it's basically a dumpling mm-hmm. and it's it's steamed I believe and it's it's very delicious and I'm sure everyone has heard of chulant you don't know you've never heard of chillin no <laughs> oh interesting okay yeah. so how do so I guess I would describe chillin as a, a stew
0: oh oh chulant. yes you know yeah I- but I'm also very odd because I grew up very secular. So the first time I heard of chulent and had it was um, in Israel in 2015, because most of the tour the group that I was uh, with were observant Jews because oh, a, lot of, a lot of secular Jews don't, well, I guess because we don't go to we don't go to shul regularly, yeah. we, don't, we don't have Chilent. Um Because I always thought interesting, you said that it's specific to your community. I thought it was more of like an Orthodox food, or or no? So I I grew up eating it. Oh, so maybe maybe it originated from there, and then it spread out. So
1: so so the reason I mentioned chillin' is we have our own version I see.
2: of it.
1: So so chillin' I guess we'll call it, again, more of a general cuisine. We have something that we call osvo or oschavo. And it's very similar. I'm not sure of the ingredients, unfortunately. I've only eaten it a couple of times. But it's basically Bukhari insula is the easiest way to describe it.
0: it. I'm just wondering, does it have spinach in it?
1: I've never eaten it with spinach.
0: Interesting, because the word you use to describe is a word that I heard growing up, and at least in the Belarusian dialect, I think it meant something with spinach. But again, (laughs) it could be one word interpreted a couple different ways, but I will do a culinary research, and I'll also link those dishes uh, for those who want to try recipes. And so let's um, jump really far ahead in terms of geopolitics. So, you know, we're talking about the Muslim-Jewish relations, uh, all the different nuances there. Today, do you know if Uzbekistan has a positive relationship with Israel?
1: So, they do. Mm-hmm. They 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 do have a good relationship. Um, only issue I've seen is that they don't do much trading. And this is because Uzbekistan is a landlocked country, and if they want to ever ship something to Israel... Other besides for, I guess, flight, it needs to be routed through Kazakhstan or Russia. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But on the more positive side, the technology that Israel has, because as everyone knows, Israel is a technological powerhouse in both the medical and the agricultural sect, as well as the foreign exchange program, interestingly enough, has been a major help to the Uzbeks. Mm -hmm. For agriculture, Israel has been actually helping Uzbekistan with getting their water to be distributed more effectively. And so this is because we have drip irrigation. And this is going to help the Uzbeks improve the quality of their soil. And in turn, they're going to be using their improved soil to improve their ability to produce plants and feed their people, which is also going to be done with Israeli technology.
0: And it's true. It's always advantageous for any country to have a positive relationship with Israel because only advances could be obtained through that. Of
2: course, exactly.
0: Absolutely. And so, you know, a, I, I strongly believe that a podcast on one of the republics uh would be lacking if we did not talk about communism. And so, I grew up pre, well, I I was born here, but you know, I grew up on stories obviously of communism and how it affected my family in Belarus. Um how were the Jews treated in Uzbekistan in communist times? And was there as much anti-Semitism there post-1950s like there was in the more Western republics?
1: So as unfortunate as it is to say this, there, there definitely was. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in part due to the anti-cosmopolitan campaigns, which were started in late nineteen forty eight. And Soviet Union essentially targeted anyone with a Jewish background and accused of people of not being loyal to the Soviet Union and being too connected with Zionist ideologies, essentially. And this affected us because whether you believed in what they were telling you that you believed in or not, it affected us because it restricted our professional and our educational opportunities. Now, along with this, we were also placed under like, the surveillance by the state on top of being marginalized. And some people were even dismissed from positions they held originally.
0: So it was exactly like it was in the Western republics in terms of. Yeah. 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 And was that travel, do you know if travel was also restricted? Because um, I don't know if this is true, but at least like for, for what my parents told me that. They were, they went to Georgia, but, and I said like, oh, did you ever go to Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan? And I think, again, I, I could be wrong, but from what I remember, I think they said like, oh, like we were not allowed to travel all the way there, but I'm not no. sure. So do, do you know of any restrictions like that?
1: So I don't know that my, like how much my family travels exactly. You know, in the Soviet Union, there were travel restrictions. Um, it wasn't just for Bukharians, it was for everyone. Uh, you need proper documentation and travel and you need valid reason which needed an, an okay from government. So the way I put this is basically if you live in New York, let's say your family was in Jersey and you had to give the authorities essentially a reason for going to New Jersey and they would have to approve. Right? So imagine this 4th of July, you have to go to your local government and be like, hey is, is it okay if i go visit my cousins
0: right i
2: mm-hmm.
0: Understood. and then so speaking you know this is what i was wondering i know that religion was outlawed for everyone right but then i'm just wondering was it more targeted against jews or do you know if muslims could not were they able to practice their faith at all um in uzbekistan or were they also as restricted
1: so, I, I of course, I think I think we know uh, equally about this that that they were all oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Jews probably more so than everyone else.
2: Um,
1: have yeah, F- faith was definitely discouraged and 100 percent suppressed. One thing that I was speaking to my grandparents about recently is, I asked them, I was like, well, "Where did you go pray?" Mm-hmm. Because. I've actually reached out to the Uzbekistan Armenian Jewish community and spoken with them, and just you know, seen how everything is. And I asked them, I was like, "Oh, you know, there there are these synagogues. Where'd you guys pray?" And they're like, "Oh, we we didn't go to them." I'm like, "I'm oh like, I am like do not understand. Why did you not go to them?" And they basically say that we formed, like, we were praying in our basements or in our backyards. It was it was a very private thing. You know, you didn't do publicly, you didn't do these mass gatherings.
0: And it was interesting because um my family uh on both sides, well, it was interesting. So my father had an underground Zionist club in his medical school, but it was raided by the KGB. Everyone got arrested except my father. And the only reason he didn't get arrested, he was at a funeral for one of his family members. Um, but in terms of faith, neither side even knew much about the Jewish faith. Um my mom whose uh, father actually was studying to be a rabbi in Poland. And he ended up in Belarus via the Oral Mountains. So my grandparents on one side met hiding from the Nazis in the Oral Mountains. One came right. through 16 hours, uh, literally five days after she evacuated her whole family from Belarus, uh, the Nazis came, invaded the country. And that was that. Um, and then my grandfather was conscripted into the Red Army um, from Poland. And, and you know, the, the borders were, were very fuzzy back then, right? So he yeah. was in Lvov, then Poland, now Ukraine. All of his family was murdered by not in the Nazis, but by locals, you know, in, in those ravines. Um, and then the Red Army dumped everyone that they had conscripted into the Raw Mountains. So that, that's how yeah. he was, right. But so even though he was studying to be a rabbi. Um, they were so careful not to, right, like not to even share any of the traditions because, you know, where they had lived, it was a multifamily home and everyone was touching yes. on neighbors. So they knew that, you know, even if we were to celebrate the holidays quietly, maybe our neighbors could hear and, you know, and that's it. Like tell, tell on us and we would end up in prison. Yeah, but
1: because a lot of the homes oh, so. were.
0: Oh, sorry. So, so she was saying that like, you know, maybe like twice a year they would have like a dinner. So she knew what Pesach was. She knew what, um, young keeper was and only because, uh, her father didn't eat that day. Um, but I also know that a lot of Jews or a good portion of Jews who were, I guess their family had been more Hasidic, um, were very much underground practicing, right? Like maybe, uh, the Jewish wedding would happen, but it would be like, at night, right? Like and it would be like more dim. Or but like you said, there were there were some uh prayer groups, but it was more underground. And so I'm just curious about your own family. Did you hear any stories that, you know, did they become more secular or did some family members somehow end up practicing but very underground uh and, and to be careful not to have the authorities on their back?
2: Oh, David, are you there? Okay,
0: so uh, so sorry, uh, we had a slight pause uh, for technical reasons. And so, uh, David, I was asking uh, about if you know of any family members who, you know, were practicing the Jewish faith more underground, or did they become more secular like a lot of other Jews uh, did in, in, in that time period?
1: Yeah, so it's actually very interesting to ask that because I grew up with a story. And I was recently told something very interesting. Uh, I think the reason that my family was able to maintain their Jewishness so much, especially their foreign identity so well, especially on my mom's side, is because my grandmother, her grandfather, was the rabbi of the community. Is what I was told. So. Obviously, you know, when, when you're a rabbi, you know, you teach your kids, you teach your grandkids about Judaism, you teach them how to do certain things. And then it's it's, it's more around you. I was also told that my mother's father, his ancestors somewhere along the line were, were rabbis. So I would say that that they did a great job preserving it. Um, I'm, I'm following, I'm a practicing Jew as much as I can so I would definitely say that that they preserved it and it was definitely in part because they they had these figures in their families
0: that's so wonderful to hear and inspiring too I know that well my family maybe was different because um you know my parents immigrated here in 1979 and did not, you know, become observant, but I know a lot of, um, you know, Jews who did come from the former Soviet Union, uh, they came here and they became very observant. So mm-hmm. I think that, that that does play a role, you know, in terms of community strength and, and the leadership, um, in, in those communities. And so I had read that there had been some tensions, uh, between Ashkenaz Jews that escaped to Uzbekistan, and the Jews who had been there for centuries, like you know, like your family, is there any truth to that? And if so, do you know what the basis of that conflict would have been?
1: Yes. So I've actually experienced some of this. Yes. Um, people have found out they're like, "Oh, you're a Bukharan Jew." I'm like, "Yes." They're like, "Oh," and then they're like, "You know, not not for me." And, and, and I don't understand it. I, I still really don't. I think it has more so to do with the fact that in general in america i feel whether you want to admit it or you don't there's always a tension between the Sephardi and the Ashkenazi jewish community you know whether one thing is better than the other or, or something else you know we don't want to mix you know it's a bit off topic but i always tell people that we always see anti-semitism outside like just wait till you see how much we butt heads in our own community absolutely yeah So. In terms of how was it, I've heard different stories, again, just like how it was to live amongst the Uzbeks. Some people are like, yeah, we we were totally fine with our neighbors. And other people are like, it was a little off. I personally think it was just because we have such cultural differences. Korean Jews are known to have very strong culture. We stand behind our culture. Um, The way it's been described to me is we may not be the most religious people, but our culture is strong. Mm So
0: I agree with that, and you know one of the reasons I'm doing my podcast uh, this season on Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews is because you know the majority of Jews um, you know in America are Ashkenaz, and the Ashkenazi doesn't know much of anything. Like in fact, I have a neighbor who who is Ashkenaz, older neighbor, and uh, I don't know maybe six seven years ago we were having a conversation, and I mentioned something about Mizrahi Jews, and without missing a beat, he said, "What is that?" <laughs> Said what?
2: Yeah.
0: Even even I, in my very rudimentary, you know, uh, knowledge back then, knew what Mizar- knew who Mizrahi Jews are. Um, and so I just think that it's opportunities like this, you know, like bringing on uh, valued guests to share their family histories, to share the history of the community, um, really to to amplify the voices, and, and I think that's needed, right? Because then we have people who are non-Jews in America who literally think that all Jews are Ashkenaz and that's yeah. far from the truth.
1: Exactly, um, yeah.
0: And so um do you, um this is just like something that that came to me. Um are there any Jews today who are left in Uzbekistan? Um and if so, in which city is would they live? And also part two of my question would be um do Bukharian Jews These days, do they travel to Uzbekistan to visit? And is that something that's popular or or not popular?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So the Jewish community in Uzbekistan is definitely dying. The last time I read was that we actually import kosher food from Tajikistan. Hmm. So that's how dying we are. And another thing I read was that they have now more so trouble making a minion here. Uh, for those that don't know, that that's 10 men above the age of 13 you know, in, a, in a prayer. So we, we have trouble doing that. And a lot of people who are remaining or either getting older, you know, someone said that now they go to more funerals than weddings and, you know, like, 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 vermelas or something of that sort. So we're definitely dying in that regard. And it's also just people moving out. You know, people are like, "Yeah, my family's in Israel, my family's in Australia, America, wherever they are." People are just moving out. In terms of going back to visit, it's funny you asked that as well. I actually recently just arranged a trip. I'll say I I will be going back to Uzbekistan. I will be going to Tashkent, Samarkand, and Bukhara, visiting all those cities. Uh, my family is out of Tashkent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But so I will say, yes, we do go back. There is a organization based out of Queens, I believe, that organizes trips for Bukharian Jews. And aside from myself, I know that my great uncles have gone back. I know a couple of friends who have gone back. So people are people are definitely still going back.
0: Well, if there's any room on the trip for Jews who really admire the Buharian uh, yes. Jewish community, uh, but are not Bukharian, I volunteer myself because I would love to go and, and see for myself, you know, like the, the, the history there. And so you mentioned that your family uh, was from Tashkent, but then we have the name Bukharian, right? So Bukharian Jews are named after the city of Bukhara, correct?
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so could you guide our audience both both listening and and visual i guess where is buhara like in terms of the like, is it north south east, like where is it located
1: so i know it's definitely north of afghanistan um and i believe it was left i don't know exactly on the map um i can look at one if you would like and tell you exactly it's like okay. um, yeah. but i know it i think it's southwest if i'm not mistaken
0: okay um, just to have a just to have a like a vocal point like you know what we're talking about yeah. and then you mentioned right like so you said like you no know, your family is from tushkan they're uh buharian jews who also lived in, in other parts so why is it called buharian is it just because there were more jews in buhara like how how did how did the name come about
1: yeah so there was a ruler during the time um, I can get you the name after so you can link it. I don't know his name, but basically, he was a ruler who, when we had the Emirate of Bukhara, he was basically like, okay, you guys are the Jews of that region. You guys are now the, the Bukharian Jews. And and it's really interesting that he gave us his name, because I don't think I mentioned this earlier. But although nowadays, pretty much every Bukharian Jew, you, you meet speaks Russian. And we speak Russian and English. We also have our own language, right? Which is known as Bukhari. And unfortunately, it's a dying language. There are very few people I know that speak it. But Bukhari is, it's Judeo-Tajik, just as a, as a little background for it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is because, you know, we lived around Central Asia. We came from Iran. So we were speaking in these languages. It's a mix of, you know, Russian, Hebrew. Tajik and a little Aramaic, I believe. What's really cool about the language is also that it covers three bases. You can speak to people who speak Tajik, You can speak to people who speak Farsi and, of course, Bukhari. And I know this because I actually saw my grandparents recently do it. We met someone who spoke Farsi, a Persian Jew, and they just engaged in a full conversation with them. And I was like, I was mind blown.
0: That's so interesting. Wow! See, I always learn something new in these podcasts. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. I, I want to now uh, research that a little further as well and and dig in. Um, so you mentioned Israel before, right? So like there was, uh, you know, not the reason like uh, that community is dying, uh, figuratively mm-hmm. and literally in Uzbekistan because so many you said Jews had uh, moved to Israel. So are Baharian Jews overall in the diaspora, are they overall Zionist, would you say?
1: I'd say so. I'd say so. And so, mm-hmm.
0: and so yeah. do you think of many Baharian Jews here in America, do they tend to make Aliyah to Israel?
1: So I wouldn't go as far as saying Aliyah. I would say that if you present the topic of Israel to them, they're very open to it. You know, I think if you went to them were like, hey, do you want to go on birthright? I don't know anyone myself who would be like, No, why would I go to Israel? Um, so yeah, I think we have a very positive stance towards Israel. A lot of Bukharians moved mm-hmm. to Israel. We actually have our own quarter in Israel, if anyone wants to visit. It's called harim Where is it? Was that? Established. Um, I don't know where it is, but it was established by Rabbi Shlomo Musayev, who has a synagogue in Uzbekistan, so that that's really cool. We have our little community named after us. Um, one other rabbi whose name I unfortunately have forgotten, but yeah, we're, we're definitely with Israel, you know, every step of the way.
0: Interesting. Do you know? And I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you know if there was a Baharian Jewish community in Israel pre-liberation? Meaning prior to
1: 1948. Yeah, so the so the Harim has been there for a while. Wow, it's been there since way before Soviet Union. It's been there for a long time. So yeah, we moved there. We've been there for a good amount of time.
0: I think that's also something that needs to be shared more because, again, the misconception that. Oh, it was the Ashkenaz that came and, and built and rebuilt uh, Israel, and, and that's not true. Right, like you know, uh, I make it a point to emphasize that. First of all, it was the it was the Sephardim who held down the fort um, yes. <laughs> for hundreds of years. So they they were the majority in, in Israel, and then you had uh, Yemenite Jews. Uh, the, they came in. You had Kurdish Jews who came in. Uh, their first wave was end of the 16th century um so i i think it's a little bit lopsided <laughs> the, the narrative yeah. and and even i you know like i consider myself i mean I, I don't think anyone's an expert in anything um while they're alive we're constantly learning but i have never heard of the like you said the Bahrain, uh, quarter and i and i should and i need to learn about that so so thank you for that and, um so i hate to use the word intermarriage when it comes to jews within our jewish communities because again, we're one people, but I did notice that, for example, the Persian community, right? Like they are very, um, strongly, um, of the opinion that for the most part, you know, Persian Jews should only marry other Persian Jews. Yeah. So question is, do Jews, uh, of the Bahrain community, do they, uh, and I hate to say this again, like the intermarry, but, but okay. I won't use intermarry. I will say, are they open to marrying Jews of other communities or is it preferable to marry within the community?
1: So from what I've seen is that I think all communities want to stick together. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that outside intermarriage, for example, marrying a non-Jew is not, it's not really something we do. I've heard some I call them extreme people because when I read it, I was like, "Okay, this is a little much." Is that there was a Baharian Jew online when I was reading, and he essentially said that a lot of us would much rather marry a Muslim Tatar than a an Jew. And I was like, "Okay, I was, I was like, that's, that's a bit extreme." I'm like, I understand that you know they have a different culture, um, and and all that, but to to say that you want to completely marry outside of the faith, that's going a bit extreme. As of right now, I am seeing more Farians marrying outside of the community, um, marrying Ashkenazim. I personally don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, But yeah, you know, we have a v- the thing that makes us really special is that we have a very strong culture. Mm-hmm. So even if you marry outside, your culture will carry on.
0: Right. Um and especially because everything is just like better, I think, in terms of you know, like music and, and family bonding and, and the food. So I, I think whoever marries within the culture is someone who already has maybe an affinity for their culture. Yeah. Right. That's true. Um, so you mentioned uh, the Tatar uh, Muslims, right? So I know for again I I hate to generalize, but what I've heard and I have a cousin jewish um she's in italy right now and her boyfriend is a tatar muslim um who well converted to catholicism but you know italy it's a little bit different but anyway so he loves jews and his first wife was jewish his current girlfriend my cousin uh is jewish and he had shared that the tatar community um has is fairly philo-semitic and so just, like, thinking, and again, like, if you don't know this, that's fine. Something, like, you know, for me to research further. Um, but were the Tatars also minorities in Uzbekistan, or were they, like, the majority of the Muslims who were anti-Semitic? I'm just, like, trying to figure out. Yeah.
1: So, to be completely honest, I don't really know. I, I would say that I, I know nearly nothing about the Tatar community. Um. I think they're based out of Russia. I think that's about all I know. Um, But yeah, I'm not very familiar with them. I've never met one in person. So I I usually try and judge people. Uh, Not judge, but I I try and see what what they're about when I meet them. Right. So like like I said earlier, I have an Uzbek friend. I was always told all my life, you know, be beware of the Uzbeks. You know, they, they might try and do something. But I was like, let me see for myself. So I don't know anything about them, but yeah, absolutely. I definitely would like to, you know, I want to learn about all of them.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because you know, like, when we say like Muslims, right? Like a a lot of people assume that it's just a monolithic uh, group. But then when we, when we think about the former Khazar empire and and by the way, whoever is listening and and watching Jews are not Khazars (laughs) at all, um, at all, The, the King converted, that is all actually what's interesting. Um, is that the, they were Christians who
2: could yeah. have
0: mass converted to Islam. <laughs> so definitely yes. did not mass convert, but they were extremely phylo And so when they did encounter Jews along the Silk Road who ended up in their territory, they welcomed them, they worked with Russian. them. Yeah. And then when the Russians um, beat the Khazars and the Khazars ended up in Crimea, the Jews that already were there some of the Jews and the Khazars did end up intermarrying them. And so there is one group in the Jewish diaspora. I think they're called the Kermatic Jews. And so they're the only ones that those who intermarried, obviously those Jews do have <laughs> Khazarian genes. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it is like interesting, right? Like, you know, you have um, like, I, I was reading about Jews of Yemen, like a lot of them, obviously, you know, discrimination, uh, lived as, as Demis, but then there was the Habani group. They were warriors and they were uh, hired. Um, uh, I don't know if they were paid, but, but they were hired with not being Demis. They lived uh, really well amongst Arabs because they were protecting the sheikhs. They were protecting imams and foreign, they were fighting with Arabs. So it, it's all a little bit, you know, relative, like depending on, on the population. So yeah. that's what's so, interesting and and complex and and unique when we talk about the Jewish experience, right? Like even like you said, like within families, like, you know, one family could have a positive experience, another one could not. Um, but I have learned so much from you, David. And honestly, like all I kept thinking was like, oh, I want to research more about this. I want to research more about yeah. this and that. So we're going to link um, some of the dishes that you mentioned. Uh, we'll link uh, the for lack of a better word, the chief rabbi that came through to the community, unified the community, uh, will link a little bit more information about um, the language that you said. If you can repeat it one more time. Buhari. Buhari. Um, and so you said it was Judeo-Tajik, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I, I think that's all fascinating. And so I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for awesome. sharing. You're very proud. Uh, Jewish uh, diaspora heritage. And um, I, I hope a lot more people will, will learn about you and your community.
1: May as well. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much. And have a great rest of your day. And Shabbat well. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.